Well, good morning, Orchard Church. How are we today? First thing you need to do is give yourselves a round of applause for being here on a holiday weekend. I can't prove it scripturally, but there's probably a special blessing for something like that. So good job. Good job, everyone. Hey, uh, Pastor Doug sends his greetings from Orizaba, Mexico. He and Pastor Marcial are down there uh, helping the Rezgas, who are a missionary family that we support there in Orizaba. The Rezgas are undertaking a building campaign, and they've asked Doug to come down and kind of help them kick that off. And Doug has a little bit of experience, given what we've gone through the last couple of years building this building. So he and Marcial are down there helping them. He will be back next week. We'll pick back up in Esther next week. Today we do have a guest speaker, but before we get there... Would it be okay if we just took a moment to pray for those in Houston and Southeast Texas, everybody that has been affected by Hurricane Harvey? So let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we look at a hurricane, a storm of this magnitude, and the devastation and the impact and all those things, and, and we can't comprehend just how big a storm like that is. And Lord, it's easy in our own strength and our own mental capacity to get overwhelmed and not know what to do. But Lord, in those times, it's then we need to look to you, who is bigger than even that. So Lord, in faith, we ask that you would continue to write the story of Hurricane Harvey, that the story is not yet finished. Lord, we know that you will turn things that the enemy means for harm, you will turn them to your glory and for good. Lord, I believe there will be testimonies that come out of this storm of people finding you because of this. And Lord, we hang on to those stories. We know that you're our comforter and we ask your comfort over everybody who's lost a family member, over everybody who's lost property and things they hold dear. Lord, please comfort and Lord, please restore. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. So next week, as a practical thing here at Orchard Church to help those who have been affected by Hurricane Harvey, we'll be taking up a special offering, which we will submit through the North American Mission Board. The North American Mission Board is one of the largest relief organizations in the United States, and we're a member of that network. And every dollar that we give will go directly to disaster relief. There's not a bunch of overhead and administrative costs. So we'll be taking up that offering next week, so please make sure you come next week ready to give for that. We'll be putting it on social media as well, so you can uh, look for it that way. But that's next week. Today, we've got a special treat. You know, two months ago, we brought a man on staff, very talented guy, who has uh, brought up the average height of our team quite a bit. But he's elevated the average talent level of the team quite a bit as well. So everybody, uh, you've seen him on stage in the worship team. You've seen him on stage closing service. But it's the first time teaching here at Orchard Church. So give a big Orchard welcome to Matt Thompson, our creative arts pastor. Thanks. Yeah, well, thank you, everybody. It's great to be here with you. We're going to be in Luke chapter 15. If you want to jump ahead in your Bible, if you brought that, or your mobile device, of course, we'll have it here on the screen as well. I just want to do a quick plug for an app, if I could. If you're new to the Bible or you're new to technology and we say, hey, you can turn in your mobile device to this Bible, there's a version app. It's a free app, U being Y-O-U. It's been downloaded over 200 million times. It's got to be one of the most downloaded apps that has, anyone has ever made. And, and so that app is free. I use it every day of the week. It's got Bible studies. It's got devotionals. Uh, but when we say you can turn in your mobile device, and some of you are just like... First of all, what's a mobile device? Second of all, what would I turn to 
Uh, you can use the YouVersion app. We're going to be in Luke 15. I'll be reading from the New Living Translation if you want to look that up specifically. The YouVersion app has every translation you can ever imagine and some that haven't even existed yet possibly. Who knows? It's, it's quite phenomenal. I, uh, I am the newest member of the Orchard family, but I'm kind of like that uh, unplanned for unexpected child that comes along after you think your family's done, if you know what I'm talking about. If that's you, you don't have to nudge your child right now. Um, <laughs> earlier in the year, I wasn't on anyone's radar. I didn't know anybody here at Orchard. Nobody on staff knew what a creative arts pastor was or did. Many of them still don't know. I have to tell them every day what I do. Um, this position didn't exist. And then one day, our lead pastor, Doug, invites a coach of his out to do some consulting with the staff, and they're going through these next steps. You know, we've got this building coming up, and the plan is we're going to reach more people for the good news of Jesus, and we're going to, ministry's going to go to the next level in a new season of ministry. And, and Doug at one point asks his coach, his name was Scott, he asks him, what do we need to do to be ready for this? What do we need to do to be prepared for what God is going to do? And Scott said, well, you need to get someone on your team who's been where you're going. Someone who is an expert at weekend experiences and communication and marketing. Someone strategic and innovative. Scott said, you need to hire a creative genius, and I know the perfect guy. Well, that guy wasn't available. <laughs> Fortunately for me, somewhere on that list, my name came up, and uh, we've been here now for two months. I'll show you a picture of my family. We love it here. As you can see, we go to Rockies games dressed like that. I'm actually going to a game tomorrow, and I will cheer for the Rockies tomorrow, but my wife and I are from Southern California. Uh, we met when I was on staff at my first ever church 16 years ago. Uh, I know I don't look that old. That's very nice of you to think that. Um, we met while I was doing ministry there, and after getting married, we stayed there for a few more years until we felt God calling us to Arizona, where I became the worship pastor of a church that at the time was this small little church, and I was there for nearly a decade. And after I left, it went from being in one location to being in multiple locations. I think they're at six locations now. Very large uh, multi-site church in Arizona. Got to be there for a decade as the worship pastor, which is almost unheard of these days. I think it's a Guinness Book of World Record. But we got to have both of our daughters there, Abby and Penny. They're now six and four. We moved to Rapid City, South Dakota a couple years ago to be a part of another large multi-site church. Um, and now we're here. And so almost weekly, I get one of those girls saying, Daddy, can we just live here forever? Because we love it. And they've moved in three states in their short lives. And so, yes, let's please stay here forever. It's not always up to us, but uh, we want to be here. We love Colorado. We love Orchard Church. We love the staff. I love what Orchard's all about. Like, that was a big deal to me when Doug and I first started talking back in April through the phone conversations that we had. One of the first things I would discover is, what is this church all about? And there's a statement that every organization has. It's called the mission statement. Every organization has one that defines who they are and why they exist. It's their belief of, of this is what it all boils down to. This is our identity. And so here in your notes, you've got the mission statement for the church. We're going to put it on the screen here as well. If you've been here for any longer period than a week, this should be ingrained in you. Uh, even, we've even said it here today. Let's, let's say this here together in your notes. We help people find and follow Jesus. Can we say that one more time? This time, let's believe it, people. Come on. We help people find and follow Jesus. Yeah. Now you've all been indoctrinated. So if you didn't believe it, now you have to because you just said it out loud. This is who we are. This is what we do. 
And oftentimes we'll get guest surveys back and they'll say the first thing that they noticed was how welcoming and friendly our ushers and our greeters are. Our volunteers do an amazing job, don't they? Don't they make you feel welcome every day? Yeah. We also hear that they love the music, they love the teaching, but you should know that these are the byproducts of our mission. That's what we do, and we do that because we want to show, we want to help people find and follow Jesus. And so when you think of who Orchard is, when you think about what we exist for as a, as a group, as an organization, as a church, it's that right there. We want to help people find and follow Jesus. And so everything we do is along that pathway. But here's the interesting thing about this mission statement. I don't know if you guys have ever thought about this. This is probably the most controversial mission statement I've ever heard in my life. There's some controversy here. Let me, let me explain to you. We live in a society where it's very sensitive to what everyone feels and thinks. There's a lot of relativism. Relativism is, it's okay for you to believe what you believe as long as you don't believe I have to believe it. That's, that's the culture that we are now in, where everything is equal, where everything has to be politically correct. And when you say that someone needs to find Jesus, that means they need to be found, which indicates we believe they are lost, exactly, which isn't exactly a politically correct thing to say, but here's what you need to know about Orchard. Our aim isn't to be politically correct. Our aim is to be biblically correct. Amen? And so we're going to look at what the Bible has to say about being lost and, ha and what it has to say about being found, specifically the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 15. So if you're not already there, you can turn there now. We're going to start in verse 1. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. Now, before we get into what he's teaching, before we get into what he's going to say about being lost and about being found, we need to pause right here. Because this is a very important verse with great implications for each of us, if we call ourselves a Christ follower, great implications for us as a church. We know over the centuries, Jesus has been known as a friend of sinners. And we often think that he's the guy that goes out into their environments and he meets them right where they're at, whatever that environment was. And, and those are true. But what, what Luke is saying here is that these, these sinners, that's the label that they have. That's their identity. The label that they have as sinners, they would come and hear him. They would intentionally put themselves in a position to be near him. Now, here's why this is, is so important. We know Jesus is sinless and these people are notoriously sinful. They have nothing in common. They probably don't agree with him politically. They don't see eye to eye definitely on his morals or his ethics. I mean, he talked about finances and possessions a third of the time. I mean, people think church talks about money too much. Imagine being around Jesus. You're like, oh, another giving story? Come on. But yet they wanted to be near him. It says tax collectors. These are people who would take money from what they would receive. They would steal it. They would cheat. They would lie. We know prostitutes are in that group, drunks, alcoholics, lovers of cats, like the worst evil <laughs> imaginable. If this is your first week, first of all, welcome. Everyone's welcome here. There is typically one cat joke per week. So I am meeting a quota that was set for me. It's not by choice. Obviously, it's not a sin to love cats. It's just weird. But we're going to get beyond that. And the point is that, that Jesus never sinned a day in his life. And yet these people wanted to be near him. Here in your notes, write this down. Help you to remember this. Lost people like Jesus. 
Now, I said there's great implications there. Think about this. If lost people like Jesus, and we are to represent Jesus, we are to be the body of Jesus, what does that say about us? I have to look at this and I have to think, are there people in my life that they don't have to agree with me or believe what I believe in order to still want to be my friend or still want to be near me? Think about us as a church. Is it okay for people who don't believe what we believe yet to come here week in and week out with the hopes of one day they would believe what we believe? But have we created that environment where people don't have to see eye to eye with us? Because lost people like Jesus, we want lost people to like us. But this made some people mad here in verse 2. This made the Pharisees and the teachers of the religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. So the lost people like Jesus, the religious people, not so much. And so Jesus told them this story. He's going to tell these religious leaders, these holier than thou, these self-righteous people, this story. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it? Now, let me give you some context here, because if, like myself, you didn't grow up on a farm and you don't hang out with a whole lot of shepherds, uh, let me just explain for you why this is such a big deal. You see, a shepherd, their entire source of living is found in the sheep. His income, his resources, his business is in the sheep. You know, they, they would shear it. They would sell the wool. You understand? For the clothing, they would raise the sheep, slaughter it, sell the meat so that people could have nice MLT sandwiches. You know what MLT is? Mutton, lettuce, and tomato, where the mutton's nice and lean and the tomato's fresh, right? This is his income. It wasn't like he moonlighted as a doctor, it wasn't like I'm going to be a shepherd by day, but at nighttime I'm going to perform surgery, and that's really where my, my money comes from. No, this, this is the source of his income. And so what Jesus is saying, that 1% of his business is gone. 1% of his income is gone. And in this day and age, a shepherd would have anywhere between 20 and 200 sheep. So Jesus is letting his audience know that this man wasn't very well off. He was kind of right there in that middle, just a little bit below. And so losing 1% of your income is a big deal. So, of course, he would go and search for it. Let's pick up in verse 5. And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. Not begrudgingly, not angrily, not muttering curse words under his breath, you stupid piece of sheep, you son of a you. No, no, he joyfully will carry it home on his shoulders. And when he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors saying what? Rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is less joy? Same amount of joy? No, no, no. There is more joy in heaven when one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over the 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. That's pretty extreme. You have this math equation in your notes, and this is, this is going to mess with some of you right here. God's joy, one is greater than 99. Like, that's worse than common core, for those of you who know what common core math is. <laughs> that makes no sense, but God's joy is magnified. There is more of it when one lost person comes and finds Jesus than over the 99 that were safe, obedient, doing what they were supposed to do, never strayed that, over that group. 
But what Jesus isn't saying, he's, okay, he's not saying that there's no joy in the 99. Okay, I want, I want you to take a look at this verse. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Zephaniah 3.17, obscure reference of the day. Here it is. The Lord your God is living among you. He is a mighty Savior. He will take delight in you with gladness. With his love, he will calm all your fears. He will rejoice over you with joyful song. Isn't that incredible to think that he sings joyfully over us? There's, I'm going to make this real practical, like today practical. There's 400 people in this room right now. You don't have to turn around and count everybody. They, we've got people that do that for you. There's 400 people in this room right now. And when we just sang and gathered just a few moments ago, we worshiped God, we put our thoughts and our hearts on God. Many of us raised our hands, we adored Him, we celebrated Him. There is much joy in that. In fact, when we sing to God, He is singing right back to us. He is delighting in our song, week in and week out. And later on in the service, we're going to receive an offering like we always do. And let's say 400 people tithe today, okay? Tithe is you're giving 10% of your income, the first 10% back to God through the church. Let's say, 10, let's say everyone here gives 10% today. God delights in that. Check out this verse in 2 Corinthians 9. For God loves a person who gives cheerfully. He loves the person who gives cheerfully. He delights. He finds joy. It brings him great excitement when 400 people worship him through singing and through giving. But what Jesus is saying is that God would have more joy, not if the 400 did that, but if four outside of these walls would find Jesus. One percent. That's his math. One is greater than 99. It brings him more joy. That joy is kind of unfathomable. And so Jesus didn't stop there. His audience didn't get it, so he kept going. In verse 8, or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? Now, again, context. This isn't like a quarter is misplaced in the seat cushion of your couch and the ice cream truck is coming and you're thinking, man, I just need one more quarter. It's not that kind of like frantic anticipation. This is called a drachma. Can you say that with me? Drachma. This is what she would have gotten paid for one day's labor. A drachma is a coin that you got as your salary. So this is one day's wage for her. And we know she has 10. We don't know if she's going to save up and buy something, if she's putting that aside for an emergency. But she just lost 10% of her income. Does that make sense? Would anybody else be frantic if they just lost 10% of their income? Am I the only one that would search my entire house? I would tear it apart to find 10% of my income. So verse 9, when she finds it, she will call her friends and neighbors and say, what does she say again? Rejoice with me. The same word. Rejoice with me because I have found my lost coin. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. Pastor Doug says this almost every week. When one person says yes to following Jesus, there's a party in heaven. This is where he gets this from. There is a massive party and celebration going on in heaven when just one person who doesn't know Jesus, finds Jesus. I want you to try to do some imagining with me, okay? I know this is Sunday morning, and you are very intelligent people, and it's hard to be imaginative when you're intelligent, but we're going to try this together. Can, are you ready? Are you ready to use your imagination? Is it too early? Can you do this with me? Yes? You have an imagination today? It's okay. God gave you that imagination. You can use it. I want you to imagine going into work this week, 
Picture that in your mind. Now, if you don't work, that's fine. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's your children. Maybe it's your parents. But picture in your head your place of employment. Are you picturing that? Say yes if you are. You're picturing that. Now, I want you to imagine your boss calling you into their office. Picture your boss, and your boss says to you, you've done a great job. I'm going to give you a 10% bonus. Yeah, you felt it. That's the kind of joy that God experiences when one lost person comes to know him. So if you make $50,000, let's just use that as a nice, safe number. If you make $50,000, your boss just handed you a check for $5,000. Can anybody use $5,000 today? Well, I happen to have nothing in my pocket to give you $5,000. Yeah, I don't imagine, I can't, I can't possibly think that any one of us would be like, you know what, that's awful kind of you, but I'm all right. You keep it. No, no, no. We are going to take that money, right? We're going to leave. We're going to call our spouse or whoever is close to us. And we're going to say, I just got a check for $5,000. This is incredible. Book the cruise, right? And call your mom because the kids ain't coming. This is, this is my money. They didn't do anything for it. We're going somewhere. Am I right? That is the joy that God experiences when just one lost sinner comes to know him. Here in your notes, hope you remember it this way. God's joy for one lost person is like a 10% bonus. Now, God doesn't need a 10% bonus, but he's helping us know that that is the joy that he experiences every time one lost person comes and finds Jesus. And we as a church, we say we exist to help people find and follow Jesus. Think about how much joy we would bring God when we live out that mission. But they still didn't get it. They still couldn't fathom that amount of joy. So he continues on in verse 11 to illustrate the point further. Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons, and the younger son told his father, I want my share of the estate now, before you die. So his father agreed to divide up his wealth between his sons. Now, in this day and age, this would have been unthinkable. This is the first century Middle Eastern culture where children didn't disrespect their parents. Okay, what this son just told his dad was, I don't want you, I want your stuff. I want you dead. His audience at the time, Jesus' audience would have been flipping out, losing their minds. Like, he did what now? You, wh and so he's expecting the father to say, backhand slap, you're out of the family, I'm cutting you off, you're banished. But, but what would have made them even more irate was the fact that the father obliged and he split up his money and he gave it to his son. Let me just summarize what Jesus says after this because what happens to his son, it's, it's pretty detailed. He, he takes his inheritance, he goes off to a foreign land. And we're told that at the exact same time that, that he wastes all that money, he, 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 he throws it all away. This is where we get the word prodigal from, by the way. If you've ever heard the stories called the prodigal son, the prodigal means to, to waste. And so the prodigal son loses it all right as a famine hits. So he's got no food, he's got none of his inheritance, and he's hit rock bottom. We know he's hit rock bottom because he is feeding pigs for a living. Now, in that culture, in the Jewish culture, they didn't eat pigs. They didn't touch pigs. Pigs were disgusting. They were vile. They were detestable. You didn't go near him. And basically, the pig is his employer at this point. 
So he has hit rock bottom to the point where he's looking at the food that they're eating, and he's like, man, I could just stick my face in that slop right now and go to town. So he comes to his senses, Jesus says. He, he finally has this epiphany, this light bulb moment of, wouldn't I be better off working for my father? Wouldn't I be better off if I just threw myself at his feet and begged him for mercy and, and just hoped that he would take me back and make me a hired servant? This isn't like, uh, this isn't like the, the, the servants that they had in their quarters. No, the, the, the servants that they had in their quarters were like part of the family. They slept on the quarters. They ate the same food as the master and his family. This is like a day laborer. It's like, wouldn't I be better off if I just worked for him for a day and did some work and then went off by my own at nighttime and I, I, could, I could eat better, I could have more money. So he comes to his senses and he begins to practice this speech. And so he goes back to his father. Verse 20. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, you need to remember that, you can underline it, put a star next to it, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming, filled with love and compassion. Now the reason those are underlined is because everything he's about to do is what love and compassion looks like. Everything he is about to do for his son is the overflow of love and compassion if he is filled with love and compassion. So first, he ran to his son. Then he embraced him, and he kissed him. And his son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. I am no longer worthy of being called your son. He throws himself at the feet of his father, begging for mercy. I'm not worthy to be your son, but at least, at least make me a hired servant. He was hoping for mercy, but here's what he gets. He gets love and compassion, and here's what this looks like, verse 22. But his father said to the servant, quick, bring the finest robe in the house, which would have been the father's robe. He's saying, put my robe on him. Get a ring on his finger and sandals for his feet. In other words, take care of his needs, right? His feet need to have sandals. Give him sandals. Put, put a ring on it, a ring which would likely have the insignia or the family crest, basically saying, he is my son. He is in this family. Put that on him, clothe him, and all of that. We must celebrate with a feast, for the son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he was found. So the party began. He also says in there that we've got to kill the fattened calf. There was a calf that they were feeding more food to so that they could swell it up and eventually have a party and, and eat it for such a time as this. See, the, the son was hoping for mercy. Mercy would have been not getting what he deserved. He deserved to be cast out. He deserved maybe even be locked away to be sued because he'd lost his, his father's inheritance. But the father gave him grace. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. And the audience that is listening, remember, he, he tells this to the self-righteous, the, the Pharisees who are the teachers of the law. They uphold the law better than anyone. They teach others to follow it. He, he, he's telling this to them who would have been just wanting justice at this point. Justice would have been, this son gets what he deserves. He gets locked up. But the father had other plans. And so the party is, is going on. The party is taking place, and uh, his older brother hears it. The older brother, probably like, like my, my children, Abby and Penny, is doing what, exactly what he was told to do. If you have two kids, if you have an older sibling and a younger sibling, you probably know that the older one they're going to do, yes, I'll, I'll do that right away. But my younger one, I say, Penny, clean up your toys. Why? I remember when she was a baby and I'd, I'd tell her to do something, like say, hey, Penny, could you turn the light off? She'd say, you turn the light off. 
that's the younger sibling, right? That's, that's me. That was my whole life as well. But the older brother is in the field, and he hears the party going on. And so he asks the servant, what's with all the noise? What's with all the commotion? What's all the, all the celebration? And the servant says, well, your brother's back. And when you would think the older someone would be like, that's awesome, my brother's back. He, you know, stop working, run to the house, be excited, hug him, do all those things that the father did. The older son didn't want to be a part of it at all. Look at verse 28. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. He wouldn't go into the party. So his father came out and begged him. But he replied, all these years... All these years I have slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet, when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. Now, don't miss this because the older brother... He was the obedient one. He was doing what he was supposed to do. But now he's not participating in the celebration because his view of justice conflicts with the father's view of grace. And so the two of them aren't seen eye to eye in this. So the older brother, the older son refuses. He's obedient. He's done what he was asked to do. He, was, he, he, he should have been celebrated this whole time, right? The younger son went off and squandered everything, but the older son, he, he should have been celebrated daily. Oh, this son of mine, he does everything I tell him to, but no, not even a goat, he says. Look what his father says in verse 31. His father said to him, look, dear son, you have always stayed by me, and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he's found. So Jesus has these three stories to explain the Father's joy, God the Father's joy, when one lost sinner comes and finds Jesus. And there are a progression. I don't want you to miss this progression because it's, it's pretty telling as he's setting up his audience for this final moment of the story. The first story, we've got a shepherd who loses one in 100, and he searches until he finds it, and then he celebrates. Then you've got a woman that loses one in 10, and she searches until she finds it, and then she celebrates. But then you have a father who loses one in two sons, and nobody searches, but there's still a celebration. And I think what Jesus is trying to do with his audience as he's walking them through these stories is, is he's setting them up for them to see who God is. And God to them, clearly as he's painting this picture, is the father in this story. Remember, I told you that, that the son was still a ways off when the father saw him coming. Is it just a coincidence? Are we supposed to believe that he just happened to look in that direction and saw the silhouette of, this, of his son coming? Or, or can we believe that if this father represents God, he was looking and waiting patiently the whole time? That there was hope in his heart as he fattened the calf for such a moment as that celebration that God the Father longs for his children to come, for the lost to be found, that he celebrates and lavishes grace on them, what we don't deserve. And then there's the older brother. I think the listeners of this, the stories that Jesus is telling them in the first story, they're going to relate most to this older brother. 
They're not going to relate to the younger brother. Remember, he's talking to the obedient, righteous, holier-than-thou Pharisees and teachers of the law, right? They're going to relate with this older brother, and like the older brother, they want justice. They want someone to recognize their righteousness. They want someone to recognize their obedience. They don't want things to be fair. They don't want grace. They want justice. And so, as Jesus is walking them through this, and and his listeners identify with this story, this final point in your notes is going to stand out to them. And it's going to stand out to us today. Write this down in your notes. Found people find people. Found people find people. It's the mission statement of every Christ follower. We're the older brothers in the story. It's our job to be searching for the lost. Remember in the story, the older brother knew some details that Jesus didn't say as Jesus was narrating the story. Remember, Jesus said that he went off and he squandered it on reckless living, but the older brother said he squandered it on prostitutes. That's a very specific detail that wasn't previously mentioned. Could it be that the older brother knew exactly where his his younger brother was? And could it be that Jesus is trying to get his audience to realize that everything I have is yours and always has been, and I take great joy in your obedience, I take great joy in your righteousness, but I would find more joy if you would search and find that which is lost. Let's get real practical here. Here in your notes, there's three bottom blanks. We heard last week, or a couple weeks ago, I should say, that within five miles of this room, there are 50,000 people that don't go to church anywhere that have no relationship with Jesus. We could say that they are lost. We don't know what their lifestyles are like. That's irrelevant. Our goal is to help them find Jesus. There are thousands of people all around us, and I believe that there are hundreds that we come in contact with every day. First line in your note would be that hundred. One in 100. These are the people in our community. Maybe they're your neighbors. Maybe, uh, maybe it's the barista that you see weekly if you go get coffee at the same place or the grocery store checkout person or, or maybe it's someone at the gym. We all see people throughout our lives that maybe we don't know a whole lot about them. They're one in 100 and they're in our community. Is there somebody in your life that you can think of right now that fits that description? If a name comes to mind, would you write that name down? Or if it's not a name, if it's simply just the barista or the person at the gym or or whoever it is, who is your one in 100? Write that name down on that blank next to the community. Who is the one person that you can seek to help find Jesus? In the next line, we have our one in 10. This is a bit of a smaller circle. These are people that we are acquainted with a little bit more. These could be your neighbors, coworkers, people that you see more regularly. Maybe it's your your kids, friends, parent, or somebody like that. Who has God put in your life for such a time as this to help find that person? Then finally is your one and two. This is your family and your friends. These are the people that I'm hoping you're in contact with daily, people who who you know don't know Jesus. Would you write a name down there on that line? Someone close to you. What I want us to do this week is just pray for these names and maybe be so bold as to take a step and have a conversation with them. Maybe your prayer is that God would put them in your pathway and give you the words to say. And so what I wanna do is I wanna pray for us now in this moment. Would you guys bow your heads and close your eyes? 
as we think about those names, let's, let's, let's pray for just a moment. God, we thank you that you are patient. We thank you that you are loving, that you are compassionate, that everything we have is from you and everything that you have, you would gladly give to us, that you find joy in us. But God, there's someone that you put on our minds today. There's somebody that, that we can come in contact with this week. There's someone that we can be praying for someone who is lost. Would you reveal that to us? Now, with eyes closed and heads bowed, if, if God gave you a name, if there's somebody specifically that you wrote down on one of those three lines, would you just be willing to raise your hand right now with no one looking so that I can pray for you specifically? Yes. All over the room. That's great. Father, for these hands that went up, would you put people in their pathway this week? people who are lost, people who are, maybe we don't even know, but they've already been thinking about you and, and they're coming to their senses as the younger son did in the story. And, and Jesus, they are ready to know you. Would you give us wisdom to know the right things to say and do and the courage to do it? And for those who didn't raise their hands, God, would you put people in their lives, divine appointments? Would you put us uh, in, in places where we are, are seeing and thinking of that? And allow us to be always looking and searching for that which is lost, Jesus. Now, with eyes closed and heads bowed, still in a moment of prayer, if, if today you're coming in here and you're not feeling like you're a part of the older brother crowd, maybe you feel like you are still lost, that you know that, that you are sinful, and, and, and Jesus, just know this, he is the ideal older brother in the story. He searched when his younger siblings were lost. He didn't wait, but he came after us. If, if that's you today, if you're ready to pray that prayer to, to allow Jesus to come into your life, if you're ready to find him today, would you pray this prayer with me? Jesus, thank you for dying for me. Thank you for searching for me, for bringing me into the family, for sacrificing all that was yours in order for me to be brought into the family. Now again, with eyes closed and heads bowed, if you just prayed that prayer today, if that's you, if you're ready to be found, no one's gonna see, I'm not gonna ask you to stand up. Would you be willing just to slip up your hand right now so I can pray for you? Wherever you're at in the room, would you raise your hand? Yes, I see you. Yes, bless you, I see you. All right, let's pray. Jesus, thank you for those that you've touched today. I pray that you would move us all to follow you. That is our desire to help people find you and to follow you, to not just convert, to check a box, to say yes, but Jesus, to follow you. And so for those who just prayed that prayer, God, help us to help them walk alongside and, and, and to, to send them in the right direction so that they can truly know you, Jesus. Thank you for your love, your grace, and your mercy. In your name we pray, amen. Hey, can we celebrate Lazarus in heaven right now? Yeah. Amen. Amen. Hey, if you did pray that prayer today, the Bible says that you've been adopted into the family of God. So on behalf of everybody here at Orchard Church, welcome to the family and welcome to the party. Yeah, we can celebrate that. If you did pray that prayer today, you may be wondering, what's next? What's next in my, in my walk with Jesus? One very practical thing you can do is when you came in today, you got a newsletter, or should have received a newsletter. In that newsletter is a connection card. It looks like this. If you'll fill out your contact information, and just check the box that says, I said yes 
to Jesus. What that will let us do is, number one, pray for you by name, but number two, be able to send you in the mail a booklet that will help you in your next steps with him. If you're a first-time guest today, hopefully you have filled out that connection card as well. If you'll drop that in the offering bucket as it goes by, we're not interested in your money today, first-time guests, but we are interested in connecting with you and telling you thank you for being here with us. We have a free gift to send you as well. Hey, Matt will be out by the blue tent. If you've never been able to talk to Matt, haven't met Matt in the time he's been here, stop by and say hi. He would love to meet you. You'll also notice there's a white tent out there, and that's for our small group sign-ups. So if you're interested in joining a group, we encourage you to do that because that's where we connect. That's where we support one another. If you have questions about how to sign up, there's people out there waiting to help you. You can help you find a group and teach you how to uh, use the website to sign up there. Next week, Pastor Doug will be back, and we will pick back up in our message series, All In, the story of Esther, where we left it last time was Esther has chosen to go all in, go before the king, take, take her life into his hands by going in uninvited. So whether she lives or dies, we'll see next week. Pastor Doug will be back to tell us that. And then uh, if you'll just stand as we close in a song of worship, and we worship through our tithes and offerings because we are a church who wants to act our wage by giving first because we have a give first God, saving second because margin is healthy and living on the rest. Thank you, Orchard Church. We love you.